In his book simply entitled Heaven, author Randy Alcorn suggests that far too little attention has been given to that particular subject. He says, go to most systematic theology books. Those are those thick books that kind of break the Christian faith into, into various topics, uh, orthodox truths of the Christian faith, like the Trinity, the, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, creation, fall, salvation, the church, these things like that. Yeah, go to one of those theology books, and if you're lucky, you might get a page or two on the topic of heaven in the last couple pages of the book, or you might get nothing at all. Now, on the topic of eschatology, now, that's different. Last things, you might get pages on the timing of the rapture <laughs> or the teaching of the tribulation or the various millennial positions. All of those things that people love to debate, but very little about heaven, which is odd, he suggests, given that's where we're going. That's what this is all about. The hope of heaven is that to which we are supposed to fix our hearts and our minds. I mean, stop and think about it. We spend 70, 80, maybe 90 years uh, here, but we will spend all of eternity in heaven making this life here just merely a vapor that here for a little while then vanishes. Heaven is the culmination of the divine plan of the ages. But, but, but all too often our focus, let's just be honest, is here. And I suppose that's fine. It's af after all, we do live here. But if the gospel is true, and it is, this is not, listen, this is not all there is. Our very short time here is basically an opportunity to trust Christ, his cross work, and, and then, having trusted Christ, to faithfully serve our God, and, and all in the rock-solid hope, rock-solid hope of eternal life. It's why Paul writes things like this in Colossians 3. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, raised from death to life, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. In this case, you're confused about that. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, he says. At the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will uh, be revealed with him in glory. It's interesting, several years ago, there was a song that had a cute uh, line in it that went like this. If you're too heavenly minded, you'll be no earthly good. I, I'm, uh, quite, I'm not sure that I've ever met anyone that was too heavenly minded. At least, I've never been so. Can you be too heavenly minded? Philippians 3, for our citizenship, check your passport. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that very famous and my personal favorite passage in Philippians 1, for to, to me to live, well, that's Christ. And to die, that's gain. If I'm to live on in the flesh, that, that means if I'm living here, it's all about Christ. It's going to be fruitful labor for me. I don't know which one to choose if he had a choice. He's talking about life or death. I'm hard-pressed in both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. Have you ever had that desire? Now, I'm not talking about suicidal thoughts. That's not what I'm talking about. But have you ever had the desire to depart and be with Christ? Because that is very much better. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 11, the famous hall of faith, for he, that is Abraham, was looking for a city 
which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Drop down to verse 13. All these in the hall of faith died um, in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, we don't belong here. Just to pass them through, this world's not my home. Those who say such things, they're not crazy. They make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. Indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, this for Abraham, that would have been Ur of the Chaldees, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city. We keep seeing this over and over, a city for them. He's preparing it for you. Of course, Jesus said things like Matthew 6, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. All those things that we pine for, instead store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, what is it that you're pining after? What is it that you're saving, laying up there, your heart will be also. And then John 14, as he prepared his disciples for his work on the cross and his soon departure, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. The old King James has mansions. I've got a mansion just over the hills. We used to sing songs about heaven, not so much anymore. If we're not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, don't miss that, there you may be also. The best thing about heaven, my brothers and sisters, we will see it today, the best thing about heaven is being with Jesus. So you see, the Bible is not exactly silent on the topic of heaven. Now it is True, it's not till we get to the last couple of pages of the Bible, to the last couple of chapters of this arduous book we've been studying, that we get much of a description of heaven. Well, at least we get more of a detailed picture of heaven. So, well, here we are, living our earthly lives, some successful, some not so successful. Having studied through the New Testament over the past 26 years, if you've been here, and this is where we are headed. I want you to listen to me very carefully. It all comes down to this. All the challenges of studying through the book of Revelation over the past year or so, we finally arrive. All of the challenges of living our lives for Christ, we finally arrive. All the challenges of 2,000 years of church history, all the wranglings over last things, and we finally arrive. In fact, all of the challenges of human history from the Garden of Eden until now, and we finally arrive. This is it. This is the culmination of God's redemptive plan of the ages. It is what, don't miss it, it is what he has had in mind all along. Everything points to this incredibly good news today. Fact. I do not mind telling you, I wrote this sermon on Friday morning with Beth Cheshire, if you're new here, that's one of our pastor's wives, pancreatic cancer. I had her firmly in mind. 
And you know that I write my sermons out, a manuscript that, and I wrote that last sentence Friday morning and suggested that she was in the last moments of her life. She died Friday afternoon. But heaven awaited. That is the current heaven. But I want you to understand that there's a new one coming. And it is our hope, such that we grieve, but not as others who have no hope, the hope of the gospel, and for what awaits those who believe in Jesus. So this is an incredibly encouraging and timely text, especially for many of us here this morning. I hope it will be for you. And the implied question, by the way, as we get to the end, will be this. Are you a conqueror? <laughs> Are you a coward? Really, that's where the text goes. Look at it with me. Revelation chapter 21, verse... Finally, everybody breathe a sigh of relief. Chapter 21. No one in this room is more happy than I. Verses 1 to 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne speaks and says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these things are these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give, you, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And you say, I thought that was last week. It's been some time since I reviewed the outline uh, of the book with you. I just want to put it on the screen, but I want to draw your attention to Roman numeral 8. Put it in yellow, just in case you don't know your Roman numerals. <laughs> I'm kind of nice like that. Roman numeral number eight, the triumph of God. After the three septets of judgments, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, we saw the triumph of God in chapter 17 to 20. And notice how those all go together. That's a unit. You see, in chapter 17 and 18, we saw the, the fall of the unholy city, the, the, the rebellious city, in contrast to the new city. You're supposed to notice that. In contrast to the new Jerusalem, the, old, the fall of the old city called Babylon. That brought us to chapter 19 where we saw the Hallelujah Chorus, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the second coming of Christ, and the battle of Armageddon, where the Antichrist and the false prophet are finally thrown into the, the, the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And we say, Hallelujah, which brought us to chapter 20, still under the triumph or 
well, I could call that the victory of God. We saw Satan bound, cast into the abyss for a thousand years, no longer able to deceive the nations. We saw the first resurrection, that is those who believe in Jesus are now raised physically from the dead to, to reign with Christ during this thousand years. That is, we went over the millennial positions, whichever one you hold, I happen to be premillennial. Then we see Satan loosed, and, and many at the end of that, of that thousand years, many flock to him in rebellion, which leads to the final battle. Satan is defeated, cast forever into the lake of fire. And again, we say hallelujah. But then we saw the great white throne judgment last week. Some disagreement on this, but everyone agrees that the unrighteous, the earth dwellers are judged according to their works. Remember, the books are opened, including the book and any names that are not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they too are cast in the lake of fire. A little harder to say hallelujah. But everything is now done. All evil is now banished. Judgment is done. Unbelievers cast forever into the lake of fire. Believers, God's people, resurrected forever to eternal life. Which brings us now finally to the eschaton, the, 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 the eternal state. This, again, is what we were supposed to have been waiting for all of our lives. This is heaven. This is the eternal celestial city. The, we've been, the road by which we've been traveling together, looking for the city whose architect and builder is God. We get the introduction to the new heaven and the new earth and God's purposes in the recreation in these verses that I just read. Next week, Lord willing, we will see the detailed description of the new heaven and the new earth, which, don't miss it, are now together. Nothing better. The outline of the text this morning goes like this, new heaven, new earth, old heaven, old earth, the purposes of God in this recreation, and then... Actually, I could have put a question mark on this. Conqueror or coward? John starts the chapter with the familiar words, then I saw, after the final judgment, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth are past away. Now, when he says, I saw a new heaven and new earth, that's a, that's a specific Greek word. It speaks of something new, a new reality, if you will. Whereas the word first speaks just first in chronology, the first heaven and the first protos, first heaven, first earth, passed away. That happened in the last passage when the great white throne is seen with one sitting upon it from whose presence the earth and the heaven fled, but there was no place found for them because don't miss it, judgment has come. Again, as I suggested last week, there's some disagreement as to whether the new heaven and the new earth that we read about here are a recreation of the old heaven and old earth. God seems to be in the business of redeeming broken things, or whether they are completely new with the total destruction of the old. Incidentally, there are passages that can be used to support um, each position. As I suggested last week, you decide. Either way, what John sees now is something that is completely new in the sense that all that was imperfect in the old, where we live right now, that we pine after, no longer exists. Gone. See that in verse 4. The first heaven, the first earth, and all of its corruption passed away. New heaven and new earth were prophesied by Isaiah 
In chapter 65, probably John has this in mind, where we read these words, for behold, I, God speaking, create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will be not be remembered or come to mind. Can you believe it? When we're in the new heaven and new earth, this will be a distant memory. Hallelujah. Peter picks up the idea of 2 Peter 3, after the destruction of the old heaven, old earth, According to his promise, Isaiah 65, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which, this is incredible, in which righteousness dwells. You see, in this old earth, righteousness has not dwelt. Even in the old heaven, when Satan rebelled, there was evil there. But in the new heaven and the new earth, filled only with righteousness, without sin, without pain, without all of its sorrows. It's going to be glorious. There's even no longer any sea. Why the sea? Well, the sea was seen as a place of chaos and disorder, even evil. We remember the beast, the Antichrist, rises out of the sea back in chapter 13. So the new heaven and the the new earth will have no vestiges of any evil, no symbols of evil to include the turbulent, uncontrollable See, so I have some bad news for some of you. There's not going to be any deep sea fishing in heaven. Sorry. All will be peaceful. All will be calm. Verse 2, the image narrows to the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband, New Jerusalem was mentioned in chapter 3. Paul talks about um, the, the Jerusalem that is above in Galatians. The author of Hebrews talks about the heavenly Jerusalem. Lots of discussion about whether or not it exists right now or if that's what Jesus is working on. Again, you decide. I've been so excited this has fallen off. We will have a detailed description of the new Jerusalem next week. But notice, as the first Jerusalem was to be the spiritual center of the world and seems to be the place from which Christ reigns during the millennium. There is now a new Jerusalem as the center of God's new created order and everything in it will be altogether righteous and altogether holy. But the verse goes on in apocalyptic language to describe this new holy city, Jerusalem, as a bride adorned for her husband. You say, wait just a minute. I thought we were the bride. What is all that about? We saw in chapter 19, the bride of Christ was the people of God, the church, all of the saints throughout time, redeemed by grace through faith. So what gives here? Is the the bride of Christ a people or a place? And the answer is yes. Probably both. Although it's possible the description of the new... Jerusalem is an apocalyptic description image of the people of God. But even as I say that, I'm not sure I agree with that. Many disagree because of the detailed description given uh, in the following passage and the fact that the heaven, the new heaven and the new earth sure seem to be a physical location. So certainly we could say that the new heaven and the new earth is a place where the bride dwells. We don't hold a Greek dualism that everything physical is evil and everything spiritual or immaterial is good. No, God, God, you understand, created this physical universe. We're the ones who messed it up, requiring a new one. 
Besides, in the resurrection, 1 Corinthians makes it clear that we receive new glorified physical bodies. Jesus himself had a glorified physical body. He wanted to make sure that the disciples understood that it was physical. Yes, he could walk through walls and lock doors, things like that, but it was still physical. Thomas, come put your finger in my nail prints and your hand in my side. Hey, by the way, I'm hungry. Do you have anything to eat? He eats fish with them for breakfast at the Sea of Galilee. Notice no indication that he fished for them. They were just there. John uh, sees Jesus' lamb slain standing, bearing in his body the marks of suffering and crucifixion. So it is reasonable to assume that the new heaven and the new earth are physically real and we will receive glorified physical bodies. Now, to be sure, it is a new reality, one that defies description, but the later description seems to indicate things like gates and foundations and trees and fruit and, and rivers. So all that to say... I think the new Jerusalem will be the center of the new creation and it will house the people of God. All the people of God, you won't believe it, they actually argue about that, don't know. There's a whole new heaven and a whole new earth, which we're going to find, here's the important part, are now together with a new Jerusalem at the center and we will live there. Listen, as I suggested a few weeks ago, talking about heaven today. When people die, their bodies are buried and their souls go immediately to the present heaven in the presence of Christ. So 309 on Friday afternoon, when Beth took her last breath, she took the next one in heaven, in the presence of Christ. See, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's called the intermediate state. But there is coming a day when those bodies, those physical bodies, will be physically resurrected and souls reunited with those bodies. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 is all about. That's that passage that we like to argue about. Let's look at what it actually says. I don't want you to be uninformed, ignorant brothers about those who are asleep, the New Testament word for dying, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Listen, we, we grieve, but not like everyone else who, have no, who has no hope. We've got a hope. For if we believe Jesus died, rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have died, fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those bodies that have been buried, the dead will rise first. Old joke, good joke. That's how we know Baptists will be the first to be raised from the dead because the dead in Christ will rise first. Come on, that's good. I can say that because I was raised Baptist. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. There's comfort, my brothers and sisters, in knowing that those who sleep or die in Jesus before us will be raised physically to life. And there is a physical resurrection to come along with a new heaven and a new earth and a new holy city, Jerusalem, and a bride adorned. I love that word, adorned for her husband. I had, I've, I've told you I've had the privilege of doing lots of weddings and I have never in my life seen an ugly bride. I haven't. They are adorned. They're perfect. They're beautiful. They're immaculately dressed and prepared every hair in place. And in fact, listen, my wife worked at a salon, so I know words I'm not supposed to know. I think they call that an updo. 
I don't know why I know that word. It's a wonderful description of the people of God made ready by his the people of God made ready by his work adorned and made ready f- by Christ for Christ you see we are looking and longing for the celestial city that is where our citizenship is that is what our, listen i want you to listen and think about this very carefully that is what our passport says right now stamped by the very blood of Christ What's it going to be like? Don't miss it. First and foremost, verse 3, there will be God. I heard a loud voice from the throne, not likely uh, the, the voice, uh, God, since the voice speaks of God in the third person. It's likely an angel speaking with the authority of God who says, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell. It's kind of the same word. He will tabernacle among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. It's like... He wants us to get the point. You understand what I'm saying? He says it like three times in one verse. God is going to live with his people. This is covenantal language. Throughout the Old Testament, God's going to dwell with his people. This has been the plan all along. This has been his intent, promised throughout Scripture, that God is going to dwell with his people, that he would tabernacle with them. We remember that's what Jesus did in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt, same word, tabernacled, among us, and we don't miss this, we saw his glory, as the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Certainly, the Son of God came to make atonement for our sins so that the promise of God dwelling with his people could ultimately and fully be realized. You hear what I just said? He came the first time so that we could live with God. Otherwise, we wouldn't. Christ's first coming was a foretaste of that which is to come God living with his people. The word dwell with or tabernacle with is a transliteration of the Hebrew word from which we get our word Shekinah. Remember that word? The Shekinah glory of God is the presence of God in his glory to be seen and experienced by his people. Unbelievable. Now listen. When we think of heaven and all of its, um, all of its glories, um, pearly gates, um, foundations of, of, of brilliant gems, the crystal sea, the tree of life bearing year-round fruit, streets of gold. We will see all of that next week. We have lots of ideas about heaven, some kind of crazy, like clouds and halos and wings, like not in the Bible. As I've shared before, when people die and go to heaven, they don't become, I don't care what those crazy, stupid country songs say, we don't become angels. All right? That would be called a demotion. Angels are merely servants of God. We are children of God. Why would you want to go from being a child to a servant? You're children of God, brothers and sisters. Now, one idea I think that we get right is that we, see, is that we will see others who have gone before us. Right? We like to talk about that at funerals. After all, Hebrews 11 speaks of the hall of faith, and they seem to still have their person, personal identities. The story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16 still have their identities. 1 Corinthians 13 says, we will know even as we are known. I do think, I want to be clear, I don't want to upset anybody, I do think we will know each other in heaven. And so again, often at funerals, you will hear things like, I'm so excited because they will get to see mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or even husband or wife or son or daughter that has preceded them. And I believe that is true, and listen, I believe that that is wonderful. But as we have seen through the book, listen carefully, 
The main attraction of heaven is the presence of God, and the main event of heaven is the worship of God. I'm going to say that again. The main attraction of heaven is the presence of God, and the main event of heaven is the worship of God. I wrote that. You can quote me. God being surrounded by his people, and the end of chapter, uh, excuse me, the end of verse 3 is actually peoples, which is kind of weird, right? People is already plural, but John makes it plural. The peoples of God, why does he do that? Because it does not matter. We are from every tribe and tongue and kindred of nation. And if there is any verse that deals with racism, it's this one right here. Many peoples, you see. And we're all going to be doing the same thing. We're going to be worshiping him. So the best part, don't miss it, the best part of the new heaven and the new earth is God living amongst people and we will see God and he will be the central attraction. We'll talk about this more later, but we remember this amazing beatitude from Matthew chapter 5, pure in heart, we'll see God. I don't even know what to do with that, so I'm going to give myself a week or two to think about it. There will be some notable things absent in verse 4. We're speeding to the finish, don't worry. Verse 1, we read that the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Now we find that all that was the result of sin, with sin now banished, is passed away. What are those things? Again, they are all the things that are the result of sin. And God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Sing about it. We know one of, the most, one of the most quoted verses out of the book of Revelation, you'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Probably not tears of remorse for sin, since those sins have been atoned, removed, cast as far as the east is in the west, cast into the depth of the deepest sea, not to be remembered no more. Probably more tears as a result of sin, of sorrow and pain and disease and cancer and death. Tears could be the tears of suffering for naming Christ. No longer will there be any tears. No longer will there be any death or mourning, crying for the things, these things have passed away. We saw it last week. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. No more mourning and crying over sickness and disease, the brokenness of living in this fallen world. Brothers and sisters, I know we live here and our eyes are focused here, but I want to encourage you every once in a while, in fact, regularly, to lift your eyes up. It's where we're going. Remember when Adam, and when God said to Adam and Eve on the day that you ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day you will die. And they did. They died spiritually. And God then cursed the earth with all of the sorrow and pains that we have seen. And so creation and we ourselves have been groaning, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. And at the coming, uh, and it is coming at the end of all things, at the eschaton, when God will dwell with his people. See, God's purpose for all of this has always been, it has always been to dwell with his people. I don't get that. I know me. Why would he want to live with me? 
because of the work of Christ. That's why. He wants to live with us to receive the worship of his glory that he rightly deserves for the joy of all people. And remember the very famous words of John Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Can you imagine in heaven, him receiving all of the glory and us receiving all of the joy? That's a good trade. Verses 5 to 7, we read that he who sits on the throne now amazingly speaks, one of only two or three times that God speaks, of course, not counting the Son. As one sitting on the throne, he now speaks, and what he says is breathtakingly glorious. Behold, I am making all things new. What are you going through right now? What are you facing right now? What is it that you are crushing, being crushed under the load of right now? What is it that you feel like that you cannot take one more minute of? Behold, listen to your Father. Behold, I am making all things new. The old is gone. The new, unblemished and perfect without the stain of sin has come. The fullness of the perfect kingdom to be enjoyed in the presence of God. Apparently, at this point, John is so amazed by what he saw, he stopped writing, and so God reminds him, hey, John, listen, write. For what he now heard and saw and heard are faithful and true words. Then God said, and we sang it about two different songs this morning, it is done. Does that sound familiar? It is done. (laughs) Three times in Scripture, we have something uh, similar to those words. When God finished creation, he looked at it. It was all very good, and he rested. It was done, you see. Then we ruined it. So then Jesus finished the work of redemption on the cross, and when he finished one of the last things on the, uh, the seven of the cross, he said, it is finished. And now, with the coming of the new heaven and the new earth, when God dwells with his people per divine fiat, but The eternal plan. He says, it is done. History is done. Redemption is accomplished. The eschaton is here. I can't wait. And here's the challenge. When I first came here, I was 37. A little older now, 63. And it becomes more precious to me, the thought of heaven becomes more precious. And you say, well, that's because you're closer. (laughs) It's true. But does that mean when I was 37 or 27 or 17 that I should not have had my eyes fixed on heaven? How might I have lived my life differently? How might you? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, of course, Alpha and Omega, first last letters of the Greek alphabet. When he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, he means he is the beginning of all things, he is the cause of all things, he is the purpose of all things, and he is the end to which all things are headed. He is everything, and by the way, he is everything in between, too. He's everything. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Isaiah said that in Isaiah 55. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, I have lots of money. You don't have, you don't have the kind of money it takes to buy this. You who have no money, come buy and eat, buy wine 
milk without money and without cost. Remember when Jesus said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, that the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. A few chapters later, Feast of Tabernacles, he stands and he cries out, if anyone is thirsty, he's saying this to you now. Is anyone thirsty? Let him come and drink. Come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. If you are thirsty, you're tired of trying, and you've made a total wreck of your life, well, we all have. And you are tired and you are thirsty for life, eternal life, then come and drink freely of the water of life that Jesus provides without cost. Now, to be clear, it costs you nothing. It cost him everything. Verse 7, referring back to all the promises to the overcomers that don't have time. There's a whole list of them that I could give you in Revelation 2 and 3. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give this, 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 this. I don't have time to go all of that. To him who overcomes, to the conquerors, he will inherit these things. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. Incredibly. That is an almost a near quote, a close paraphrase of what was said of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can be my son, David. And he says that to you. This brings us to the implied question in our conclusion. Will you be a conqueror, that is an overcomer, or will you be a coward? You see, he who overcomes will inherit these things. But verse 8, for the cowardly, interesting word, and the unbelieving, then he goes on to describe the character of the cowardly and unbelieving. They are abominable, that is vile. They are murderers, they are immoral, uh, which speaks of sexual immorality. They're sorcerers or idolaters or liars. If I had the time, I could take you back to the rest of the, the previous book of Revelation. And the earth dweller, this describes every earth dweller. It's all in the book of Revelation. For them, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, which is the second death. You say, wait, wait, wait. I thought we were done with that. We finished chapter 20 last week. True. But remember, the readers then and the readers today, which includes you, are still reading this. And we are not yet in the new heavens and the new earth. We are in the already. We are not in the not yet. And one of John's primary purposes is to encourage people to persevere, to be faithful to the end, despite rising opposition and persecution. We want to be people who stay faithful, even to the point of death. That's why it's here. So this becomes a warning, which highlights the first word in this vice list. That's what this is called, a vice list, the cowardly. The only only place that this word appears in the book, the cowardly? Cowardly are those who do not persevere when faced with persecution and opposition, fly under the radar, who turn back, who deny the faith, and the faith of, again, rising opposition. And I know what, you, I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute, wait, wait just a minute. Are these Christians who lost their faith and turned away? I don't, listen, I personally don't think so. I don't think that's the point. Uh, you, you decide. The point is, st- here's what he's saying. 
Everybody here, listen. Stay faithful. Don't become a coward and turn from the faith to these actions, by the way, and attitudes that the rest of the verse describes. Don't do that. Don't follow the beast. Don't become a citizen of Babylon. You are citizens. Remember your passport. You are citizens of the new Jerusalem. Stay faithfully planted. Stay faithful to Christ. Will you be a conqueror? Or will you be a coward? It's going to cost you. Let me pray. And so, Father, we bow in your presence right now and we are struck by the promises that we read in this chapter and that we will read in the next two chapters. And I want us to be breathless. I want us to be stunned. I want us to be amazed at what awaits those who know Jesus so that any funeral that we face, to include the one this Saturday, any funeral that we face for the rest of our lives, and when we face our own deaths, we will look death in the face and say, oh, death, where is your victory? You have nothing on me because I know Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to be, remain faithful to the end and cling to the promises that are made here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.